We are looking at psalms in this series of sermons that present us with uh, some particular difficulty and and therefore that require some explanation and better understanding if we are to sing their words as our own. Last time we looked at Psalm 82, in which uh, a significant majority of the words are the very words of God, words that God speaks for Himself. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? says God in Psalm 82, only it doesn't say in the psalm, and God said at the beginning, or thus saith the Lord at the end. Uh, So in singing Psalm 82, we find ourselves singing God's own words. And since there's really no fix for this, it it simply requires that we acknowledge what we're doing. And uh, even as we sing it, that we learn from Psalm 82 something of the being and the character of God. Well, that by way of review, but otherwise it also serves as a good introduction for this sermon, because Psalm 144 does something similar. It's not so much the words of God that we are singing, but instead the words of King David. And someone might say, well, of of course the words of Psalm 144 are, are the words of David. David wrote the psalm, but that's not what I mean. There are many psalms that, are, that, uh, that were written by David, so many, in fact, that he is called in, in 2 Samuel 23, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And we can be thankful to God for raising up a, a man like David uh, to write so many psalms that fit so perfectly in our mouths. When David is confessing his personal faith in God, for example, and even his faith in his own son, the Messiah, the the promised coming son of David, his faith is the same faith that we should have so that we can easily and joyfully take up his songs of faith as our own. But there are other psalms that he wrote in which he is specifically writing as the king not just generally as a believer in Christ, but but specifically as the king of Israel. Psalm 144 is a good example of this, and it's an example of that experience that we we may have had when when we are singing along and singing along and, and singing along, but then we come to hear ourselves singing words that that do not belong to us personally. But words even that, to some degree, cannot belong to us personally. Psalm 144, verse 1 says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So far, so good. It's battle language, uh, a reference to literal warfare. But we can convert and, 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 and apply it to the spiritual warfare that, that we are fighting in the Christian life. It, it makes sense to us. Verse 2 continues, He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge. Again, so far, so good. In fact, all the better because God is the same God to us. He, his steadfast love belongs to us as well. 
And He is our fortress, our stronghold, our deliverer, our shield too. And we can indeed take refuge in Him. But then, with the last line of verse 2, we are led to sing words that must belong to the king. He who subdues peoples under me. Again, in verse 7, we are led to ask of God that he rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners. So the question is, how do we sing these words? Psalm 144 is is a great psalm, and and we should certainly want to sing it despite this difficulty. So let's look more closely at this psalm in the balance of our time. What type of psalm is Psalm 144? Remember that we we can simply ask, what is happening in this psalm? What, What are we being led to do as we sing this psalm? And I would propose that while there is prayer being offered to God in in Psalm 144, that is, God is being petitioned, yet overall, it is a psalm of praise. That's how it starts, with, with praise to God, and David returns to the praise of God in the middle of the psalm as well, even as he cries out to God for his blessing. So the first point is praise to God, because verse 1 says, "'Blessed be the Lord, my rock,' who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Here is the call to worship, so often found at the start of a psalm. The call to worship makes it clear that David is writing this psalm for the people of Israel to sing, so that he calls them to bless the Lord, which is another way of saying praise the Lord. We might get so used to hearing the call and the idea of blessing the Lord, that we, we don't stop to think, how can I bless God? Isn't that what He does for me? And there are other psalms and, and other passages of Scripture that, that teach us and, and warn us not to think to have any kind of a symbiotic relationship with God. It, it is specific, specifically a pagan notion to think to trade blessings with God so that we must not worship as if to give something to God that He might give something back to us. In Psalm 50, God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness is mine. So instead, He says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And again, at the end of Psalm 50, God says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Here we are in the month of November. November is uh, often thought of as the month of Thanksgiving, obviously because Thanksgiving Day comes in November. But thanksgiving to God, and, and that's important in itself, that we give thanks to God some people just say that they are thankful, whatever, whatever they mean by that. But even more, thanksgiving to God for Christians must not come just a, a single day of the year or even an annual month-long theme. Thanksgiving to God is what the entire Christian life is all about. 
It's even the purpose for which we live, to give thanks to God in every day. Because thanksgiving is really all that God has left us to do with regard to our salvation. Christ having done it all for us. That's why God says in Psalm 50, Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And yet we are called in many places in the Psalms to bless the Lord. So that as Scripture interprets Scripture, we must understand that our praise of God blesses Him. It does bless Him, firstly, because He is pleased by our right worship of Him. He is displeased if our worship of Him is wrong, if we think to give Him something that He needs and, uh, and doesn't already have in order that He might give something to us that we need and don't already have. But God is pleased when we, when we worship Him in response to His blessings to us. Even in our relationships with each other, thanksgiving is always a response to a blessing. But secondly, God is blessed by our praise of Him because, think of it, the praise of man is the one thing that God doesn't have because of man's rebellion. Granted, He he suffers no deficit by man's rebellion and refusal to worship Him. The the angels of heaven max out, we might say, max out His praise at, at every moment. But here really is is the horror of sin from the perspective of the angels. That praise is due, but unpaid by mankind to God. So that when it is paid, when the redeemed of the Lord respond in praise to Him, it blesses Him. Our worship gives to God what He otherwise wouldn't have, namely, Our praise of Him. And here then is the praise. Remember that uh, to say praise the Lord is is merely the call to praise the Lord. It's, It's an understood you. If we want to think about it grammatically, you praise the Lord. The idea is to say, let us together praise the Lord. I call you to join with me in praising the Lord And the actual praise, then, is this in Psalm 144. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. The psalmist is declaring what God does to reveal himself as praiseworthy and to draw the praise of his people. To praise God is to declare things about God. And and since God is spirit and invisible, so that He makes Himself known by what He does, well then to praise Him is to declare the character of God along with the great works of God by which His character is known to us. Then the next part, verses 3 and 4, also fit 
with this initial praise to God because the psalmist writes, O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? It's Psalm 8 again, right? But in Psalm 144, David goes, goes on to write, What is man that you regard him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. This is, uh, this is, this is a matter of, of praise to God because by these words, we are humbling ourselves before God. Not only is it the matter of praise to God, it's even the result. We might see it as the result of our praise to God as we praise God for His greatness and, and majesty. Just like in, in Psalm 8, we are humbled and we feel small. But as we feel small, so we can better hear the gospel and and rejoice that God is for us. This great, this great God of majesty is for us. He's on our side and He's not against us. And this we see most clearly, of course, and know most, most certainly through Christ and by His work to save us. Next in Psalm 144 is a prayer for deliverance. And this flows logically. This, this makes sense, does it not? That as we remember who God is, as we are thus humbled before Him, we are also brought to cry out to Him. And here then is the cry of David. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. As the Psalms can be heard teaching us to pray, we can hear that David's prayer really is a cry. We can hear how urgently David feels his need. And his prayer harkens back to the the first verse where he calls for the praise of God who trains his hands for war and his fingers for battle. But now it's God who is the warrior king. First, David calls for the great king to come. In, In this case, to come down from where he reigns in heaven. Then he calls for God to come and to make his presence known to the enemies of David. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning so that the effect will be this, that his enemies are scattered. Even more, David calls for God to send forth his arrows and rout them. Also that he, that is David, will be rescued and delivered from the hand of foreign enemies. Next is David's promised response. It's not as explicit as it is in other psalms, but starting in verse 9, we, uh, we are hearing a vow that David is taking. He, he has cried out to God. Uh, he has called upon God to come and fight, to fight even as the warrior king from heaven against his enemies. So that in verse 9, David is basically saying that this will be his response as the Lord comes and makes his fearsome presence known and scatter David's enemies. He says, I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a ten-stringed lyre. 
I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Granted, he doesn't say if. If you come and rout my enemies, then I will sing praise to you. And the reason, I think, is firstly because, as already said, it's, it's not a symbiotic relationship between David and God. Second, because David's faith, or by his faith, he has little doubt that God will come and, and fight for him and deliver him. He's seen the Lord do it before. As we heard in the opening verses, and, and David is confident that, that God will do it again. And so it's not if this, then that. Instead, it's, it's, it's simply the, the sequence. It's when this, then that. When the Lord comes to answer his prayer, then he will sing a new song to you, O God. Finally, then, as far as working our way through the, through the psalm, Psalm 144, uh, longing for prosperity. The final portion of this psalm is, is really a, a quite beautiful poem. It's a poem, maybe a poem within a poem. It's a beautiful poem that expresses David's longing for the blessing of God upon Israel, for the abundant prosperity of his people. David writes, starting in verse 12, May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. Uh, may our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young suffering, no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress. In our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So notice uh, all the mays. Um, may this be and may that be. Uh, may another thing be. And, and it all paints a picture. Can you see it? A picture of the prosperity of the people of God. Prosperity by the blessing of of God. In other words, it's it's not some sort of secular patriotism. It's not just wanting the best for the nation. No, the last verse makes it clear, does it not? Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. And and if you think about it, that's a rather redundant statement. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. It's like saying blessed are the people who are blessed. But the repetition is the point that this prosperity and abundance must come by God's blessing, which is the last line, uh, which the last line makes all the more clear. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. But what this also makes clear is that David understood why God had made him king. God had made him king in order that he might be a blessing to the people of God. God had made him king so that David would fight and win victory, not just for himself, but for the people and for their abundant prosperity. I'm sure you know too many rulers, whether kings or prime ministers or presidents, congressmen or judges, too many receive their office not to be a blessing to those under their authority, 
but for their own advantage. David fell to this temptation as well when he used his position as king to steal another man's wife. But here in Psalm 144, David has it right. He praises God for God's equipping of him. He prays to God to come and fight, to help him fight for his people. He anticipates the answer of God and speaks already of his response, singing a new song to the praise of God. But in the end, he makes it clear that all of this is not for his sake, but for the sake of Israel, for the sake of the people over whom God had given him to rule. If we had to give Psalm 144 a title, we might call it uh, the praise and prayer and prosperity of the good king. And yet we can take much, even, even most of this psalm, upon our own lips. We too can sound the, the call to worship, Blessed be the Lord my rock. Join me in, in praising the God who provides so fully for all of us. We too can praise God specifically for His equipping, for how God works over the course of our whole lives to train us and to make us stronger. We too can humble ourselves before God. We can stand amazed that God regards us and, and, and cares for us. We too can cry out to God to come and oh that He would come in our day, bowing the heavens, making His fearful presence known in this world of rebellion and wickedness. We too can cry to God to rescue us, to deliver us by routing our enemies in this world. And we too can, can plan each week to be in church each Lord's Day to sing praise to God in response to His blessings in our lives. But let's close with this that because these are firstly the words of a king, let's hear them as Christ's words. As we hear Psalm, 14, as we hear Psalm, Psalm 144 as King David's words, we can again think of Christ, and, and we can hear Christ declaring these same words. First, we can hear Christ calling us, His people, to join Him in praising His Father. As Christ has lived and died, has risen and ascended, so He is our mediator, which means that as we are worshiping God, we are being led by Christ Himself in worship. Second, we don't often think about it, that Christ too was trained, so to speak, throughout His life. Uh, he was trained for the battle that He would fight and win on the cross. Luke 2.52 even says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We would be wrong to think that Jesus began his life as a sinner, but then made progress until he was qualified and ready to begin his ministry as the sinless Savior. No. We instead understand that Jesus was the sinless Savior from his birth. And he lived a full life of perfect obedience. 
And this is the righteousness that, that God counts to us as, as we believe and, and trust in Jesus. It's the righteousness that Jesus accomplished for us by his perfect life. And yet we are given to understand that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And he did so as his father prepared him, equipped him for his ministry and ultimately for his suffering and death on the cross. Third, as David prays for God to come, to to rise up, uh, to act on behalf of his people, we can hear the words of of Christ who has now earned for us such ministry from God. And as David is sure that God will do this, we can hear that Christ is our guarantee that God will do it for us, that he is for us and not against us. (coughs) And that he, and that as he is for us, he is also against our enemies in this world of rebellion. Next, as David anticipates the new song that, uh, that, that he will sing. Uh, so we have an early prophetic reference, really, to the new song of heaven. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 14, verse 3 says as well that that they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except those who had been redeemed from the earth. And finally, we can see that that it it is finally heaven itself that is being pictured for us in the closing verses of Psalm 144. If if, if I ask you, you where do we go in Scripture to to get uh, the clearest picture of heaven, we'd probably say Revelation. But here in Psalm 144 is a picture of heaven. David is longing for a day when the young men of Israel are all mature and faithful, trusting the Lord and living righteously in the land. David is longing. He's longing for the day when the young women of Israel are all beautiful and strong like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. David is longing for a day when the food supply of God's people will be even infinitely abundant. David is longing for a day when there is no trouble, no disputes, no politics to be played, and no corruption to lessen the peace and the prosperity of the people of God. He's longing for heaven. Did David really expect it to come in his own day? Under his reign as king, well, he certainly longed for it to come. And he was willing to fight for it on the battlefield. That God's people would be blessed with abundant prosperity. But surely he knew his own weakness, even as a great king. Surely he clung to the promise of God that one day 
his son would come from his own body. One of his own descendants would come and he would reign eternally, having won the greatest victory of all. Not over the Moabites or the Philistines or the Egyptians or any other, any other nation of that day. But that Christ would, would win the greatest victory of all, the final victory of sin or over sin and over death and over hell itself. Can we pray for prosperity in this life? Yeah, we can. And we should. But we need to be prepared to hear the call of Christ, to fight now, to, to suffer now. And, and we need to remember what we have actually been promised. David's day was great, and, and there was much prosperity. But an even greater prosperity, an abundant abundance, is ours by the victory of Christ our King. So as we sing the songs of David, especially those like Psalm 144 that are uniquely David's song, let us hear of Christ, David's greater son. And let us remember that Christ is our warrior king. He has won the victory. He has triumphed over Satan and his forces and over all those who yet belong to the evil one. And like David, fighting and winning not for himself, but for Israel. So Christ has fought and won, not for himself, but for us. Christ came into this world already ruling over Satan. But he came as our warrior king to fight and win the victory for us. Let's finish there and let's close in prayer before we sing. Some of, some of the psalms, O oh God, are, are hard for us, and we do need to stop and think about what we're hearing and, and, and what we're singing as we take these songs upon our lips. Grant us this understanding that indeed as we sing those songs that you've given us to sing, that uh, we would sing them meaningfully and thoughtfully and, and to our great blessing, even as we seek your great praise. Lord, receive our praise and return to us your blessing not as a symbiotic exchange, but out of your grace, O God, for the sake of Christ. Bless us richly and abundantly as we worship and sing to you each Lord's Day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.